We're going to turn to Philippians 2 today. And I'm so excited to have this particular passage. It is probably, well, I can say this, it is definitely one of the most inspiring, intriguing, wonderful passages of the New Testament and really of the Bible. In this passage, we will see Paul in just a few verses unlock the whole logic of the Christian faith. The Christian church for many centuries now has said a number of things. We've said many things that are profound. God has entrusted to us the gospel, which are the words of life entrusted to us. And so in many cases, the church has been very faithful to pass that along, to challenge the world's way of thinking and living with God's commands. The church has also said historically some frivolous things, some nonsensical things, some useless things. Why is it that we're meeting together today? What is it that we agree on that we believe in and we cherish? What is it that we know? Despite all of the various things that we say, I think Paul encapsulates it very, very tersely in these passages. So if you've ever wondered, what is the logic of the Christian faith? Really, what are the essential elements of the message? What is it that we believe and why do we believe it? We'll see a logical flow that Paul gives us and walks us through exactly the whole gospel message. If you uh, already believe this and cherish this and affirm it and live by it, hopefully you will say at the end, amen. That's it, and we've clarified some things, we've focused our thinking, we've polished it up, and hopefully you walk away a better worshiper. That's, that would be the goal. If you don't affirm those things, and you never really knew what's in Christians' minds. I mean, there was a time before which I was a Christian. I remember my pre-Christian life. I became a Christian, I was fairly young, but I wasn't a child. And so I remember thinking the things that Christians believe are strange to me. I'm not exactly all sure what they believe, and sometimes they say certain things that I guess I just don't even get. Well, in the very least, if you don't affirm these things, then I hope you walk away thinking these people are absolutely crazy. Because either you think it's true or you think these people are nuts. Because the story that we're given is astounding. It is astounding. And it's not just some nice little fairy tale that you can sort of take or leave. You either accept it or you're offended by it. So this is a really uh, important passage. So we'll turn to Philippians 2, and we'll read uh, together verses... um, 1 through 11, Philippians 2. Now you might wonder how the preaching team determines who preaches what passage. Uh, I just told you how important this passage is. This is, um, there was a vigorous debate uh, among the, the preaching team as to who would get this passage. It was, it was actually a fight. It was somewhat of a fight. <laughs> there were accusations made. There were tears. <laughs> we decided to settle it like gentlemen. And the only way a gentleman can resolve an issue like this is with a dance battle. (laughs) So that's what we did. I was actually in the meeting remotely, and so I had to get my camera just right. And I was was afraid going up against Tyler. He's young and surprisingly flexible. (laughs) But I I defeated Tyler in one-on-one dance battle. I worked my way all, all the way up to Scott. He still got it, by the way. Scott really still has it. And I conquered. And so I'm just kidding. Scott, he assigns these passages randomly under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but randomly. So I just held in my glee when he's like, Sanjay, can you do Philippians 2, 1 through 11? I was like, yes, yes. (laughs) So 
Philippians 1.29, remember last week Mark um, walked us through the end of Philippians. I was watching online and I was just thinking, thank God for this message. I just think Mark did such an incredible job and um, it was so devotional. And and I had the sense that Mark knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just um, teaching us this passage as a piece of text. He, He understood this in his life. Paul says at the end of Philippians 1.29, he says, this is so strange, for it has been granted to us for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Now, we like the first part. We should believe in him. I'm okay with that. Suffer for his sake. Why? Why? Isn't the suffering done? Is that really what I'm in for? I'd like to avoid that part. I'm okay with believing in him. What's the value in suffering for his sake? Remember the book of Philippians, Paul is writing while he's in prison in Rome, and things are looking pretty dark. At the end of Acts, when Acts closes, Luke is talking about it, and he's saying Paul is allowed to rent his own space. He's chained to a soldier, but he's got his own rented house. He's under house arrest in Rome. It's not a great situation, but people are still coming to him. He still can freely preach the gospel. He's still got a very fruitful ministry, and the next step, this is what his aim was, to get before Caesar and to tell him the gospel, to tell Caesar the gospel. By the writing of Philippians, things are starting to look dark, and it's a little pessimistic. Paul is talking about the fact that he's probably going to be killed. He knows it. Nonetheless, the consistent theme of the book is joy, which is so counterintuitive. He's about to die. There's a lot of important things that you might say if you know that you're about to die, and he spends most of his time talking about joy, which is really amazing. So in Philippians 2, 1 through 5, This is taking up just from what he said just before, that we should suffer for his sake. So he says this, in Philippians 2, 1 through 5, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is a spiritual father to the Philippians. Remember, he established the church of Philippi, Acts 16. And so he knows these people well. He's ministered with them, uh, to them for a long time, and he sees them as spiritual children, spiritual sons and daughters, and he knows he's not going to see them again. Um, Imagine that you're coming to the end of your life, and you want to give one last message to your children, what would you say? Probably your greatest wish for them is that they would continue loving each other. If they had any sort of rivalry or falling out, if you haven't talked to your brother in years, please call your brother. I won't be around anymore. I won't be here. I want you to love each other. I want you to support each other. That's probably the last message you would give to your children, and Paul is saying something similar to them. He's saying, complete my joy in this by being unified, being of one mind. Put down your rivalries, if there are any. In Philippians 4, we, re- we read that there is one rivalry going on that he wants uh, resolved. And put down your pride and take on the burdens of others in humility. Love others. This is his final outgoing message. That's how we know that Christ is in our midst if we, if we do this. And so this passage, as we'll see in verses 6 through 11, he uses the example of Jesus Christ and shows how humility naturally leads to unity, and unity naturally leads to joy. And it's so backwards from the way we normally think, because you think 
how do I secure my own happiness? You come up with your plans. When you're young, you think, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do this, and then I'm gonna go study at this school, and then I'm gonna have this career, and I'm going to marry this kind of person, and I'm gonna live in this kind of place. And you make these sorts of plans, why? You wanna secure your own happiness. You wanna do things that are going to please you and make you look back on your life and say, I got the things that I wanted. And often we have to fight others over those things. We have to compete with others to achieve those sorts of things. Often, however, even when we're successful, we find that we're not happy, that we just ran through a gauntlet and we elbowed our way to the top and we didn't achieve the joy that we thought we would get. Paul says, look at Jesus' example. It's actually counterintuitively, it's actually the other way around. Put down your pride. Stop thinking always about what you want and what you need. Trust God for that. He can, he can clothe you just as he takes care of, t- takes care of the, the birds of the, of the field, right? The flowers of the field and the birds of the sky. Um, he can take care of you. In humility, find your joy by bearing the burdens of others, unifying with them. So this is the story of how that, uh, the, the uh, divine story of how all of that unfolds. Now some of the background real quick, just to recap. Again, Paul is just about to face Caesar. This Caesar is Nero. If you know from some of your Roman history, Nero's never named in the Bible, but he's alluded to. Um, his name is never used, but we know that this guy was either insane or losing his sanity towards the end. And he, um, after he executed Paul, um, we don't, again, read of any of this in the New Testament, but we know historically that uh, enormous persecution of Christians uh, was undertaken in Rome. In fact, what they would do is they would take Christians, arrest them, wrap them in oily rags, and light them on fire at night to, to light the streets. Maybe that's the way Paul died. Uh, not exactly sure, but in any case, he's about to face this crazy man and tell him something very stunning and very upsetting. And this is what he's going to say to him. I imagine Paul said, said something like this. We read in uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. This is who Jesus Christ is, and this is his summary of what the gospel is. He says, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I imagine he lost his head for telling Nero, you may be a king. You may be the strongest king in all the earth. He's the Caesar of Rome. If you think you're somebody, if you think your nation can challenge Rome, here come the Roman legions. We will destroy your city. We will annihilate your soldiers. He can go anywhere, and if Rome wants it, they'll take it. He's the strongest king in all the earth. And Paul says to his face, you may be a king, but you're about to bow before the king of kings. Your knee will bend as well, Caesar. That's not just insulting. Those are treasonous words. Those are treasonous words. He probably lost his head for treason. This is also, as I mentioned, a very condensed summary of the gospel. And as we go through it verse by verse, you'll see the logic of the gospel unlock. And I hope, again, we, we perceive this more clearly. So in verse 6, Philippians 2, 6, Paul says, Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So we should have a chart. 
And this takes us into the first step of five steps through the gospel. The first step is that Jesus Christ is equal with his divine father. Now, who's his father that he comes preaching and teaching about? This is the one and only one God. There's only one God. Atheists believe in too few gods. Polytheists believe in too many. There's only one, right? There's one and only one God. I can prove that philosophically. I don't have time for it. Biblically, the Bible is emphatic. It's absolutely emphatic. God says through Isaiah, I'm the only God. There have been no gods before me. There shall be no gods after me. I'm the only one. Who else is like me? There's no one else. He is maximally great. There's only one being that can be, be maximally great. There cannot be another maximally great being. And so who is that God? It is the Father that Jesus comes preaching and teaching about. But then in this verse, we're told something really strange. Jesus was in the form of God. Another way to translate it, as form seems a little misleading, would be having God's nature. That would be an accurate translation. Having the divine nature did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So it makes a distinction between Jesus and God. He has the divine nature. Like my son has the human nature. He's a human. That's his nature. Uh, what is a nature? Well, certain attributes that you have. He has human attributes and human abilities. He does human things. He's a human, right? Whereas a dog has a dog nature, has dog abilities and attributes and does dog things. And certain things are appropriate for dogs to do, and certain things are not appropriate for humans to do, and vice versa, right? So I'd say to my son, don't lick yourself. Hey, he would never lick himself, but it would be weird. It's not appropriate, but my dog, knock yourself out. That's what dogs do, right? <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> so Jesus has the divine nature. And it, so he's distinct from the Father, and he has equality with God. Well, we read something similar. So this is the Apostle Paul speaking. Here's a little bit of homework. Write this down if you're taking notes. Read this week John 1 and really meditate on the deity of Christ. It's essential to understand what Christians are up to and what we're thinking. If you want to live a Christian life that is obedient and glorifying to God, first and foremost, spend some time meditating on the deity of Christ and really understanding what that means. If you miss this, you're pointed in the wrong direction and you're going to end up in the wrong place. Let me just name names. I feel comfortable doing this. I'm not tentative in doing this. I feel a lot of confidence in this. The Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, when, when it's appropriate, I'm okay with naming names. I will do that because I don't mean to sound arrogant. I'm talking, I'm giving a sermon on humility, so it's kind of bad timing. But let me just say this, I do my homework. I do my homework. And there are people in Christian ministry, I'm not gonna name names now, I could, that don't do their homework. And guess what, I don't respect them because you've got one job and why don't you do it? But let me get off that soapbox for a second. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say this, they say Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God, he's Michael the archangel taken on human flesh, that's what they say. Now the Bible doesn't say anything like that. You have to do a lot of gymnastics to make some sort of case that the Bible says that. They glue verses together that don't belong together. It's not what the Bible says, but this is what they say. Because only God is God, and it really doesn't make any sense that Jesus is also God while there's only one God. That's too confounding. So Jesus is a separate being, and that's what they say. Well, then if Jesus comes to us, he's not really our savior. At best, he can sort of say and coach and demonstrate and um, sort of pass along a, a message, but he's not really the savior taken on human flesh. So it's inexorable that when they start off, with a creaturely Jesus, they're gonna end up with a works-based salvation. 
Whereas if you start off with a divine Jesus, you're gonna end up with a salvation by grace through faith. And there's a world of difference between those two things. Because if you think that you can earn God's approval through good works, by dancing to God's song and winning the dance battle, right? Uh, by doing all of the things that you think God requires of you, you are going to work yourself to exhaustion, to spiritual exhaustion. And this is the testimony of time and time again of people who try to prove themselves to God. It's as if they're trying to build brick by brick a tower of Babel to heaven and climb that tower themselves and attain their own salvation. What happens is people who really focus on developing their own holiness by their own strength, they focus on all of their flaws. They see their flaws and their sins more deeply than anyone else does. We think you're doing pretty well. I'd like to be like you. You've got a lot of sobriety. Um, you've got a lot of wisdom. I'd like to be like you. I, I'm, I'm sort of all over the place. But they see their sins more clearly than anyone else and they become frustrated by them. They, they, they develop anxiety over these things. It's like climbing a, a mountain of sand and the ground keeps collapsing underneath you. You can never overcome all these things. This is Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer's testimony. He could never prove himself to God. And what happens is we begin to direct our frustration and our anger at all this futility at God. We see God as a impossible to please taskmaster and we begin to hate him when in fact our salvation is found in his gracious love, his senseless love that's given not because you did anything to earn it. So we definitely don't want to end up in works-based salvation. You don't want to have to belong to a cult where you have to go door to door and get so many uh, people to sign up for your little religious program in order to feel that you've proven your worth to God. We want our fathers to love us, not to love us because we perform for them, right? So we want to start off with the divine Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, John opens his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, okay? Now that's Jesus. He doesn't say that yet, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, okay? Distinction. There's God, and then there's Word who's with God, and the Word was God. All right. There's a distinction, but there's a unity. Jesus shares in his Father's eternal nature, just like my son shares in my human nature. Where did he get his humanity from? From me and his mother. That's, that's why he's human, because humans produced him. So Jesus shares in his Father's divine nature. Now, unlike humans who pass along their hum human genetics through egg and sperm, conceiving, becoming an embryo, now you have a third distinct human thing, the Father can't be broken up into parts. There's no divine egg and sperm to be unified in a divine embryo and broken off from his being. So when he contributes his genetics to his son, he contributes his whole being, his whole being to his son. So the son is distinct from the father, but everything that God is, is in him. He's not just the spitting image of his father. Like if you were to see my son, you'd say, I, that is a spitting image. I, I figured you had to be his son. You guys are so similar. You even walk the same, something like that. Sometimes we encounter, you guys laugh the same. He's not just the spitting image of his divine father. The Bible tells us that he's the exact representation, the exact representation. So there's nothing missing. When Jesus speaks, that's God speaking. He's not just somebody with a high degree of wisdom. He's someone with infinite wisdom. He's not somebody who's got it right most of the time. He's someone who is in fact absolutely infallible and he speaks with divine authority. So he shares in the Father's being, but then John 1.18, John says he's the only begotten son of the Father who is from the bosom of the Father. He comes from the bosom, he's not created. So he's not created out of some external stuff. He comes right from the very being of the Father, just as children genetically come from their parents. So he shares in the Father's divinity and he's eternally begotten of the Father. 
He comes forth from the Father eternally. There's no time at which the Father conceived him in his divine womb because there's no heavenly mother with which to conceive. There's no one else like him. So he eternally conceives and begets his son. And so the son shares in everything that the father is, including his eternality. So Jesus is divine. Now that's a pretty confounding thought. It's a pretty deep thought. There's a lot more to say about that. And you would do well to spend a good portion of your Christian life just really dwelling on the deity of Christ and who Jesus Christ is and really thinking about him. You become a better worshiper. You perceive God more clearly. And again, that, in my experience, that waves away clouds of doubt and confusion and really gives a sort of settling um, order to your soul. It's a very important thing to do. So uh, here is a, a brief summary of all that. Jesus Christ, uh, here's a, uh, and, uh, sorry, the deity of Jesus Christ, here's a brief summary. There's one and only one God, the Father, and his eternally begotten Son, Jesus Christ, shares in his divinity. So that's the first step. So once we've got that down, we can see the next step in this uh, very terse gospel uh, summary that Paul gives us in verse 7. Although he was equal with God and really is divine, in verse seven, Paul says, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And so here we move from the deity of Christ to the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation is what we think about around Christmas. That the divine son came into the womb of Mary, taking on human flesh. So John 1.14, again, John 1 is a, uh, is a piece of homework for us this week. John 1.14, now this helps us think about the incarnation. We often say this around Christmas. John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became human. Now, Philippians 2.7 says he emptied himself. Does that mean he ceased to be divine? No, him emptying himself is a reference to his humility. The great humility for someone, this divine person, to take on a human nature. Not just a human external representation. It wasn't a hologram. Really taking on the human body and the human soul through Mary, really taking on humanity in all of its aspects, he added that to himself in humility without losing his divinity. He didn't cease to be divine because it's impossible for God to cease being God any more than you can cease being human. You can't cease being human. You're human. I'm sorry. You can't be a horse. You can pretend to be a horse, but you can't be a horse. You can pretend to be a dog. You can never be a dog. You're still just a human pretending to be a dog. If you cease to be a human, you cease to exist. God can't cease to exist, so God can't ever cease being God. In Colossians 2.9, Paul tells us, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So he took on a human nature, but he retained his divine nature. So he's simultaneously human and divine. The early church would call him Theanthropos, the God-man. In John 14, Paul tells us some other, uh, uh, sorry, John tells us some other important things about the incarnation. So a second piece of homework John 1, thinking about the deity of Christ this week. John 14, thinking about the incarnation, because John tells us some important things about the incarnation. Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The disciples ask him, just show us the Father. You keep bragging about the Father. Okay, we believe all this stuff. Now just show us the Father and we'll believe. And he said, you don't understand. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's not claiming to be the Father. Because when he goes off and he prays to his father in heaven, he's not lying to his disciples. He's actually going to pray to his father. He's not going to talk to himself or something like that. When he says, the father sent me, he's not lying to his disciples. His father actually sent him. But when you, what you see in me is the father's divinity. You are seeing the father right now in me. When you've seen me, you've seen the father. We are not separable. There is not another deity behind me. I'm not a sub-deity pointing to a greater deity. 
all the deity is in here because I've received it from my father, my father's genetics. So if aliens abduct my son and say, you keep bragging about humans, humans this, humans that, just show us one, he'd say, you're looking at, at a human, right? And so show us the one true God, show us the Father, Jesus says, you're seeing this. So he is God's physical presence. In John 14, 1, he's not just God's physical presence, but he's God's authority. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. So Pastor Scott, we love Scott, we respect Scott. Imagine he were to do this. One Sunday morning, he gets hit on the head with a, with, from a coconut on vacation, and he comes back, and he's rewired, and he says this. He says, ladies and gentlemen, I know that you believe in God. I know that you do. I know that you trust God. The same way you believe in God and you trust God, believe and trust in me. The same way you venerate God, also venerate me. The same way you pray to God, you can also pray to me. Pitchforks and torches would, would emerge from the congregation, right? Where'd that stuff come from? We just come prepared. We come prepared <laughs> for situations like this. Good. Pitchforks and torches should arise. Unless he's hit on a coconut, Scott's never going to say that. <laughs> Jesus said this, and he wasn't hit on the head with a coconut. He says it rightly. The same way you believe in trust in God, believe also in trust in me. So somebody tells you that Jesus is Michael the archangel, there's no chance. There's just no chance. I mean, why do the apostles speak of this way? I mean, if they believed that, they could have been clear. They were terrible at passing along the Jehovah's Witness message. They were terrible. They had one job, and they failed at it completely. They keep making me think that Jesus is God. Here's my summary <clears throat> of the incarnation. Now, I realized I needed to be very concise with this, and I have a tendency to go down rabbit trails. My students, they do have a complaint about that. I go down rabbit trails because I like to explore ideas and go where they go, and the students are like, I've got a test coming up, so just give me the answer. <laughs> it can be a little annoying. So I, on the plane, I wrote little summaries of all these things. So I, I, gave, I already gave a brief summary of the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ shares in the divinity of his divine father. Here's my summary of the incarnation. Okay. It lacks a little pizzazz because I'm going to be reading it, but I just want to be clear. All right. Because Jesus is fully divine, he's able to identify with humanity by adopting a human nature without forfeiting his divine nature. It was necessary for the Son of God, the great physician who heals us from sin and saves us from death, to adopt a human body and soul in order to heal us, just as a doctor must come in contact with a tumor or infection in order to heal his patient. Thus, he is fully human. In his incarnation, Jesus Christ, who is life, gives life to humanity, which is dead in trespasses and sins. He's not half divine and half human like a titan, like Hercules, but he's fully divine and fully human. So that is the incarnation. Now that brings us to the third step in Paul's uh, summary of the gospel, the atonement of Christ. And this happens at the cross and you might think, aha, this is the heart of the Christian message. This is what Christians are up to. When I first became a believer in college, um, my heart had been turned and I wanted to know Jesus, but I didn't understand Christian things yet and I didn't, in those first few weeks and months, didn't fully understand the gospel. I was being discipled in these things. And I remember thinking, Christians talk about the cross, and they make a lot of, they think it's very significant. Jesus died on a cross. Okay, I guess that's a big deal, no doubt. I mean, somebody dies on a cross, that's horrific. Somebody that you love were to die in such a way, yeah, that's, that's terrible. It's a terrible injustice. But what's the significance of Jesus dying on a cross? I remember not understanding that fully. 
Well, Paul says this in Philippians 2. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, here's the logic of what's going on here at the atonement. This is what's happening with Jesus on the cross as he's crying out to his father. And then he says the words at the end, it is finished. We remember this around the time of Easter, right? This is what's happening. Because Jesus is fully human, he accepted God's just penalty for our sins on the cross. We have incurred an infinite debt to God because we've sinned against him. Imagine you beat a dog. That's a terrible thing to do. Don't beat dogs. If you do such a thing, there's some punishment for it. I don't know the punishment for beating dogs. At least some sort of fine, maybe some jail time. I don't know. I mean, it's just such a terrible thing. I've never even thought of it, but maybe somebody knows. Suppose you beat a human. That's a bigger sin. That is a bigger crime. There's a bigger penalty for that. You don't beat humans. Suppose you murder a human. Horrific. Horrific. We can't think of Worse crimes than that except for, you know, genocidal maniacs that commit multiple, you know, murders and genocide and things like that. Just the worst kind of human crimes imaginable. The penalty for those sorts of things should be extremely stiff. As you go up in the chain of being, when you offend or sin against a being, the penalty you incur is, is greater, right? So it's worse to beat and murder humans than it is to beat and kill dogs. They're both bad. Suppose we murder God. You can't do that. Nobody can murder God. But suppose God is dead to us and we sin against God. We flout his justice and his goodness and his love. We thumb our noses at him. We have now just incurred a debt against an infinite being. So it only makes sense that the debt that we incur is infinite and we're unable to pay that. Jesus offers himself as a representative of humanity paying that debt justly to God. You might say, well, God is forgiving. Why doesn't he just wave his hand and say, it's okay? Well, God is forgiving, God is good, but God is also just. That's very important, that God puts things right. He doesn't just wave his hand at it. That's negligent parenting. He's a good parent. He makes things right. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 4, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So Jesus was crucified on the cross to take your sins on himself. It's as if you have this enormous debt that you owe to God. If you've ever been crushed under financial debt, maybe some here are in that situation and we've all experienced that to some degree or another, it, is, it envelops your mind, it envelops, it paralyzes you. Suppose someone who has great resources, a great deal of wealth pays off your massive debt how thankful would you be? You'd kick off your shoes and go running in the rain out of sheer happiness. You're broke, but it's better to be broke than under crushing debt, right? So Jesus pays for our sins on the cross, and we might say, that's wonderful, thank God. We're broke, now let's work our way into spiritual wholeness. Not a chance. <laughs> You're bad with money. You're bad with spiritual life as well. Not only does he pay off our debt, but because Jesus is fully divine, he has paid the just penalty for sin on the cross, but he also gives us the wealth of his divine righteousness. So it's as if this person not only pays your crushing debt, and you say, thank, thank you so much. Uh, I'm broke now, but that's so much better. You're not broke. I've got billions upon billions. Come live with me. What's mine is yours. My house is your house. My money is your money. I trust you. Now you're wealthy. We are spiritually wealthy beyond our imagination. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became the, 
to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All of those are really important theological words. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. We have those things from Jesus. It's Jesus's. It's his wealth. So when you act wisely, it's the Lord prompting you, teaching you, training you, and exercising wisdom through you. It's not your native wisdom. You didn't get that from yourself. When you love and you forgive, it's borrowed from him and you get to exercise it. You get to use it. It's his wealth given to you. So here's my summary of the atonement. We were under the crushing weight of spiritual debt to God. Because Jesus is fully human, he pays our debt as the representative of humanity to God, and because he's fully divine, he shares his infinite inheritance from the Father with us out of sheer love. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. We did not and cannot do anything to earn his generous redemption. Just as he came in humility, we must respond to his graciousness, graciousness with humility. We cannot negotiate with God about our sins. We can only put down our pride and accept his sacrificial forgiveness. Moreover, he is our righteousness, as we have no other love or holiness of our own. His righteousness operates in us such that we are wholly new creatures, and in the atonement we are finally bound to him. So we see how his humility leads to us being bound to him. Without him, there's a massive hole in the center of your soul. There's a massive hole that you can't fill in by your own strength. And it's empty of righteousness, it's empty of anything good, it's empty of love until he fills that. And so now you're bound to him. You don't live or breathe apart from him. Our intrinsic life is running down. You're born with a certain battery life and we get older and then that battery runs out. We all know that story, right? He infuses us now with a new life, his eternal life, which has infinite unending energy. And so the life that you live now you live by Jesus Christ. And this bodily life will come to an end, but that's not the end for you. You go on living. You live in the presence of the Lord. In a world, in an atheistic world, we're in the 21st century. I mean, we have modern science. We have cell phones, right? I mean, it's a sort of atheistic world where people think that this is outlandish. They should think it's outlandish. By our natural thinking, they should think it's outlandish. Those people are dead wrong, and I'll debate them all. I'm happy to. Bring them. I'm just kidding. Now I'm being really arrogant. Knock it off. I won't debate them all, but I have no doubt uh, that the gospel answers these things, and it might seem outlandish, but this, this is true. This is true. Well, this brings us to the fourth point in, uh, in the gospel message that Paul gives us, Philippians 2.9. We've come from heaven through the depths of human depravity, Jesus Christ taking our sins on the cross, on himself, paying our debt, and then trading our debt for his infinite wealth and riches and righteousness. Paul says this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now that doesn't say resurrection here, but the resurrection is implied because without the resurrection we cannot get to the next uh, piece in the gospel message. But here's my summary of what happens in the resurrection. So it's implied here, and Paul would never speak uh, of salvation without the resurrection. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you know this. This is my summary. Because Jesus is fully divine, death could not hold him. Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross and committed himself to the Father. In response, the Father raised him to bodily life three days later. Since he has humbly united himself to humanity in the incarnation and united us to himself in the atonement, we are raised to life with him in his resurrection. So we've got one piece of homework 
John 1, another piece, John 14. Here's your last piece of homework for this week. Romans 8. We think about the resurrection and the next and final piece in his gospel message, Romans 8. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. Verses 9 through 11. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there, but look at it later. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So just like Jesus was raised from the dead, that's our destiny. It's not an ethereal, wispy, sort of spiritual, floating existence. Bodily resurrection is your destiny. That's your destiny, just like Jesus. It wasn't just for show. It was the first fruits of our eventual salvation. He's saving you body and soul by uniting to us body and soul. He's saving both the body and soul. And just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we think about that every Easter and we talk about it, He's going to raise us from the dead. It's already sure. You know that you'll be raised from the dead because we've already seen Jesus raised from the dead and you were raised in him. You are raised in him. You aren't raised independently of him. So that is the fourth piece and the fifth and final piece that we can't leave out, not just that he was raised, but the fifth piece is his ascension and reign. And so Paul finishes off his little hymn here that he gives us in Philippians 2. In verses 10 and 11, he says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the final part in the salvation message. This is the final piece of the gospel, that Jesus ascends and he reigns over everything. Everything belongs to him. He conquered heaven and earth, and he's the king of all of it. We rise with him. I imagine that Paul said something like this to Nero. This little hymn that we read in verses six through 11 was either an early Christian hymn that people sang or spoke perhaps at baptism, or maybe Paul wrote this and it's original to uh, Philippians. Um, We're not exactly sure, but it's definitely got a poetic character. And imagine him saying this to Nero. Nero, you think you're a king. Even you are gonna bow to the king of kings, right? Here's my summary of the ascension and reign of Christ. Because Jesus is fully divine, he has returned to his rightful place. Who can walk into heaven on his own power but God himself, right? So he returns to his rightful place, the presence of his father. He approaches the throne of the eternal God as his only begotten beloved son. We cannot approach God apart from Christ. God burns with holiness like the sun and we're made of wax. We enter God's presence in Jesus Christ. The fellowship with God, which was lost in the Garden of Eden, is restored by Jesus' humble, loving sacrifice. And reunion with God is our ultimate eternal joy. So Christ's humility leads to our union with him, leading us into the very presence of God, which leads us to our eternal joy. Humility binds us to others and leads us to joy, and we see that in the gospel. Romans 8, 12 through 17, Paul finishes that thought. Uh, that I mentioned before, he says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You don't owe anyone for your salvation. We're not debtors to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put death, uh, to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So just like Jesus is a true son, we are true sons. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be also glorified with him. He repeats that same idea from the end of Philippians 1, that we suffer with him. How do we suffer with him? We go through his passion, his execution, and his resurrection together. We are in him in those things. So here's the last piece. How do we suffer with Jesus Christ? Sounds terrible. Crucifixion, uh, Peter faced that. Peter faced crucifixion. He suffered with Christ in that way. Church tradition says that uh, they went to crucify Peter and he um, refused to be crucified right side up. He, he opted, he said, that is the glory of the Lord. I don't deserve that. He insisted on being crucified upside down. Uh, I hope that's not the fate of any of us. I certainly don't want anything like that. How does the, the Lord um, desire for us to suffer with him? by emulating his humility and bearing the burdens of others. The suffering that he has for us, it's a joyous suffering. Here's how we do it. First and foremost, we would wanna pray that God reveals the burdens and needs of others around you. Just pray for that. We all have things to do in our lives. I don't know about you, I'm a recovering narcissist. I, I know I am, right? Okay, a lot, most people are a little bit self-centered, no problem. Um, that happens, that's just kind of how we are. Some people are more giving and loving by nature. I had certain things modeled to me when I was a young man um, that, that I can say I remember events when I learned to think of myself first, to, to be self-centered, to think of myself as better. I remember having that modeled, I can give you some examples, to think that I'm better than other people. And so I focused on my own needs, my own desires, my own wants, and when other people didn't see it as important, I was somewhat offended by it. That isolates you from others, right? You push others away when you're so focused on yourself. That is a way to serious unhappiness. Ask God to reveal to you the needs of others. Now, don't worry about doing anything heroic. If God calls you to heroic things, to go to far off places and preach the gospel, to unknown people groups, to feed the world's poor, those are important things to do. Don't put a whole lot of pressure on yourself to be a hero. Don't worry about it. God doesn't need a superhero. We already have a Messiah. Paul says, endeavor to live a simple life. So look at the people near to you. It's harder, perhaps, to look at the needs of your spouse, your children, your closest friends, your coworkers, who you don't like. I, I need this job, but I don't like these people. My boss, that guy can go to Detroit. I'm not gonna tell him to go to hell, because that's Maine, but go to Detroit. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. Well, your heart is hardened, and God wants us to humble ourselves. So you humble yourself, and then you offer, okay? The second step is you do this. This is homework to do. This is practical homework. Offer to bear the burdens of someone else and provide for their needs. And you might think, I've got two problems with doing that. Before I offer to bear somebody's burdens and provide for their needs, one, I don't want to do that. That's my first problem. And two, I don't have the resources to do that. I don't have the time. If they need money, I look, I, I'm not a bank. I don't have that for you. If they need a lot of me to, to volunteer, a lot of effort to them, right? I, I just don't have the resources for that. I've got so many things going on in my life. And many of us are that way. Our lives are busy and full. God can take care of all those things. 
just for the time being, uh, allow those things to be handled by God and focus some of your time on bearing the burdens of others. Now, the first part, the harder part is that we don't want to do it because we are self-centered. You got to fake it. And I've learned this. Now, we don't like fakers because they're false people. It's like you're just a false person, like a false person who's pretending to be your friend because they want to get something else out of you. That's terrible, right? We don't like those kinds of people, okay? You're not a deceptive false person. You are an intentional, honest false person to yourself and even to others. Are you doing this because you love me? I want to love you. I want to love you. I love God because he loves me, and I trust that he's going to give me these feelings, right? And so we do it out of obedience. Um, I, I have a long story that I don't have time to give you, but one time I had to forgive somebody that I did not want to forgive. And I remember praying and saying to God, in fact, he was in my phone under the words unforgivable. Was, that was his name. And um, he's not a friend of mine, not somebody that I wanted to love, not somebody that I wanted to have a relationship with, not somebody that I owed anything to, but I knew that God desired for me to forgive him. And so I prayed and I said, God, I don't like this person. He can go to Detroit. If you want me to forgive him, that's your business. You're going to have to give me the forgiveness with which to forgive him because I don't have it in me. So then after I prayed that prayer, I didn't wait because I had the spiritual motivation in the moment. I dialed and I called him and I forgave him. And I said the words, I forgive you. And they were slightly false, admittedly. I wasn't trying to fake like I'm somebody that I'm not. But I felt a ball of rage in my stomach dissipate and go away and it's never returned. And so God gave me foreign forgiveness from his infinite wealth of forgiveness that passed through me to this person, and that person needed it. That person desperately needed it, and he was stunned by it. We didn't become great friends. We don't stay in contact, but it was important for him in that moment, and it was important for me in that moment, and God gave supernatural forgiveness that I didn't have. You've got to trust him in that moment. So if there's somebody that you owe love to, and you need to love them, and you don't feel like it, Ask God to give you supernatural love to love them with. It's not yours. You can't conjure it up in yourself. You can, you can do that for weeks and months on end and you're never gonna conjure up that love because they're gonna do something else to annoy you. They're gonna do something else to hurt you. So <clears throat> Paul calls this in Galatians 2.6, he calls this the law of Christ, taking on the burdens of others. It's actually a huge relief when you start practicing it because finally, for the first time, you can stop worrying about yourself, which is just exhausting you. And you're like, oh, thank God. What's your problem? Let me focus on that for a moment. It's a relief to you. It really is a relief. And so the third piece would be to pray that God gives us the strength to bear their burdens and the resources to provide for their needs, and he will. And then, of course, they're going to be tempted. This is what happens. They're going to be tempted to thank you. And they're going to say, thank you so much. You are a blessing. This is all the things that you did for me. And it's all going to be about you. Sometimes they're just going to, you know, you're going to offer so much to them, and, and they're almost going to, you know, not show any thanks or anything. That can be a little hurtful. Just get over it. Just get over it. Don't worry. They're not hurting you. You didn't have anything to offer them anyway. If they received anything, they received it through you from the Lord. And God graciously used you as a conduit. And as you're expressing that love, it's a great thing. I mean, it feels great. As you're finally able to love and forgive others and bear their burdens, it's a great feeling. So you just give that to them and it's transforming you. And then you're actually becoming a loving, forgiving person. It's a pretty awesome thing. And so if they flout it, well, there's somebody else, right? And uh, that next person, though, as I said, they might direct thanks to you. 
be sure to direct all thanks back to God and explain to them how this works. Explain to them that it comes from God. Explain to them that it's intrinsically tied to this gospel message that the Son of God took on human flesh, bore our sins graciously, gave us the riches of his eternal life, and we ascend with him. And that's the insane story that I actually believe. And that's why I act this way. Like children emulating their, their parents, right? When you see children, the way they act when they're very young, they're just emulating what they see in their parents. I remember seeing my oldest daughter, she's in college now, so she's much older, but when she was younger, she was like mommy junior with her, with her much littler siblings and she would hold them and stroke them and you know, sing to them and I just thought, that's so wonderful. She's so sweet to her siblings. She saw that from her mom. She saw that repeated time and time and time again. That's the way she acted. She thought that's the way you treat children. She did that because she saw that from her mom. Other times, I'd have a son just burst out of the room just saying words that, where did you learn those words? And he's just yelling and throwing stuff. Where'd that come from? Came from somewhere. Didn't come from his mother. Okay. <laughs> He's emulating his father. And I thought, oh no, there's a mirror. There's me. We emulate Jesus Christ. If you clearly see Jesus Christ, we emulate him in this way. And in this way, we're participating in his death and resurrection by bearing these burdens. So let me call the worship team uh, forward. Let's close in worship. And again, let me just summarize as they come forward. Uh, let's think about the deity of Christ this week, John 1. Let's think about the incarnation, John 1 and also John 14. Um, let's think about Jesus' atonement, Romans 8. His uh, resurrection and ascension, also Romans 8. You can also look at 1 Corinthians 15. If you're just writing those down, those are things to read and meditate. Perhaps if they come up in your life groups, I'd love to hear about those conversations if they happen. And then think about somebody that you can begin practicing with, bearing their burdens, and taking the focus off yourself for a moment and learning to have Christ operate his righteousness and love and forgiveness in you and through you. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. Uh, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit, be with us. I pray that you would continue to build up bonds of fellowship through humility and sacrifice one to another. Teach us to bear each other's burdens and as that happens, we're bound together and others are bound to us in you, by your power, by your authority, with your righteousness. Uh, Lord, any empty seats here will be quickly filled as we begin to humbly submit ourselves to others, to bear for one another, to care about one another, to pray, to offer time and resources. Lord, you will provide richly. You will be transforming us. We can even pursue this, we know, a little bit with some self-interest. We want to be changed. We don't want to be the people that we were because we're spinning in our own senseless little plans that often come to nothing. Um, we would rather opt for your life in us than our dwindling lives in ourselves. And so we pray that you teach us these things. We can begin to exercise them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.